This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Equity Mike. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Alec and today I am not joined by my equity buddy Bryce because he is off getting ready to get married. So Bryce, congratulations, can't wait to be down there to celebrate with you. But the show must go on and what a show we have for you today. WiseTech, many Australian investors will have heard of it, but if you haven't, it is a true Australian success story. It was founded in 1994 and 28 years later, it is an $18 billion software giant taking on the world. And I was lucky enough to sit down with their co-founder and CEO, Richard White, to talk all things wise tech, the logistics industry, people and culture and leadership. It was a really interesting conversation and one that I'm super excited to share with you. Before we do, I want to say a massive thank you to ASX CEO Connect. ASX CEO Connect brings together listed companies and investors and throughout the year, we've partnered with them to bring you the Equitymates community interviews with some ASX listed CEOs. If you want to hear more from these CEOs, if you want to hear from other ASX listed CEOs, go to the ASX CEO Connect website and you can find out more. They also hold live events and webinars. Their next webinar is Tuesday, the 11th of October. We'll include more details and links in the show notes. So it is my pleasure to introduce Richard White uh, to the studio. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Alec. Uh, It's great to be here. Now, Richard founded WiseTech Global in 1994 to help logistics companies manage complex supply chains. 28 years later, WiseTech is an $18 billion ASX-listed company with more than 18,000 customers across 170 countries. A pretty phenomenal success story, Richard. And some fun trivia we found while preparing for this interview. A former musician and guitar technician... Richard has repaired guitars for top Australian rock bands like ACDC and The Angels. So a pretty varied career and uh, we're one we're excited to get into today. But Richard, we love to start these interviews by hearing the CEO or the founder describe their company in their own words. So to kick us off today, what is WiseTech? Today, of course, WiseTech is very different to what it was when I started it. Um, But WiseTech creates uh, logistics execution software that allows the very global uh, logistics companies and freight forwarders, international freight forwarders, to plan, book plan, execute and deliver and bill and manage all of the processes that are required in international transactions that, that cross the world, that take an export, make it into import, Basically, almost anything that's imported or exported has probably touched a piece of our software somewhere. Yeah, you you picked uh, one of the most complex and regulatorily difficult industries to uh, tackle Mm. and would love to understand a little bit about the journey. So can you take us back to 1994, the the first day, the the first sort of dot-com boom? Uh, Why 
international logistics and what's the journey been like from there? Actually, I'll go a little bit before then just to give you the context because um, I sold, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur and I sold a, a, built and sold a few businesses. My first real business was a guitar repair. That was me because I was kind of an economic refugee from the music industry. I needed to actually pay the rent and food <laughs> myself. So I had very good technical skills. My father was an engineer and taught me a lot and I could play guitar very well. And so I had these friends people like Angus and Malcolm and, uh, you know, Rick Brewster from the Angels and various other people. Uh, and, I, and I was just, we just met in a, at various gigs and so I convinced some of them that I could do good things with their guitars and that became a business and I sold that. And then started building lighting equipment and that got me into computer technology and that got me into software programming. And then um, I sold that business and then I started a business uh, eventually leading into consulting for logistics companies and realizing that their software was very broken and disconnected from the business and it was in little sort of bits and pieces and they would, were held together by people shuffling data on paper across the office. So I thought in about 1989, I thought this is a really interesting problem to solve. I've, I'd always been kind of a problem solver, probably from you know my parentage. And I started writing software for um, some logistics fulfillment. So on the other side, the customer side, uh, that got me into the US and into some uh, fulfillment companies. And then I came back and started working much more directly. And I actually had a couple of customers who were freight forwarders. And I was able to experience what they were doing and I, what I thought was the problem. They all thought it was this is the way it works. I thought that's just not right. It has to be better than that. And so in, in about 92, I actually started, I, I said to my co-founder, Marie, leave me alone. I'm going to go and sit in a room and write <laughs> software. You run the business. We, we were doing consulting and other things. I'm just going to write software and fix this problem. And then by 94, we had you know quite a lot of customers. Uh, we had good growth. We had a pretty decent product by that stage and my uh, my uh, most senior engineer, uh, my, my now CTO, Brett, came on board and helped me write and uh, we started growing the business and we also started acquiring competitors at the time. So we have always had this sort of organic growth plus inorganic strategy that helps you sort of amplify. So if you use both of those things well, you end up growing faster and you go deeper and you can do more things. I think a lot of people will have heard of WiseTech, but not a lot of people will be familiar with exactly what you do and where you fit into, I guess, the, the complex world of international trade. Well, that, that first product, which we released in 1994, uh, was called Deliverance. And it was designed to take three pieces of capability and put them into one package. Uh, there was the underlying accounting and job costing system that let let our customers develop the, the the job and the billing and be able to get paid for their work and pay the people that supplied them. Because freight forwarders and logistics companies are largely intermediaries. They don't own the vessels and the planes and the trucks. They they tend to manage all those things together and bundle them and give them and sell them to their customers. So that was the accounting system. And then there was the freight forwarding system itself, which allows you to, to take the goods, consolidate them, put them into containers, pack and unpack them, put them onto vessels, put them into cargo holds and planes and so forth documented all and then there was the customs procedures whenever there's an international transfer of goods there's an export process which requires a permission for the goods to leave that country and then there's an import process at the other end where the goods have to enter the new country uh, and be delivered into somewhere in that new country. So we built uh, a, for Australia only, by the way, and in fact, I probably was thinking about Sydney rather than Australia in 1994. <laughs> uh, there's, there was a customs capability, there was a forwarding capability, and there was an accounting capability, and they were all integrated together in one piece. That was quite revolutionary. I did stand on the shoulders of some friends of mine that had done some of these work before, and I obviously had uh, Brett and other people in the company also working with me, but I did quite a lot of the coding and I did a lot of the architecture back then. And it was very much, it was like, I think in 94, we had six staff or something like that. But it became very popular very quick because it solved a very complicated problem that nobody had really addressed. Now that got us into, and I, I didn't think about the world. I just thought about Australia. And by the time we got to the end of 2000, 
I'd realised that there's a great product, but I'd missed a whole area of thought, a whole area of problems, which was the international piece, the, the entire trade cycle. So I actually almost accidentally signed up to a master's degree at UTS only because I wanted to go to some lectures from, from a, a marketing guy that I thought was really smart. I ended up being really falling in love with the degree and, and doing all of the subjects and actually writing most of the business plan for WiseTech as part of the assignments. So I didn't really do assignments. I just did business plans and called them assignments. <laughs> By the end of 2002, I had a very comprehensive set of plans, product plan, marketing plan, uh, you know, well, the software development ca capabilities, the, how, to, how to turn the company more agile. And I actually started a new business inside the core of our existing business. And I told everybody, leave me alone. <laughs> I told my marketing manager, please run the company. We've got a great business. It's profitable. We've got a lot of, you know, we're creating cash. By the way, one of the telling things about WiseTech is it's always been able to pay its bills, always been profitable. It's never had to raise funds to keep the business running. It's amazing. Um, so that's, uh, we, we talk about it, its ability to wash its own face, you know. So we started a new business inside the old business. The business that we were running was a, a, an Australian business with a little bit of business in New Zealand. And then we realized we had this whole world that we could get to. And so we started building the next generation of product, which was called EDI Enterprise. We released that in 2004. It was much more comprehensive than the product that I built in 1994. And I had a big team around me doing the work. I did the product management then. And by the way, I was told time and time again, you know, you can't do it. It's too big. It's too complex. No one does that. And particularly no one does that from Australia. Now, I, I stupidly didn't know how hard it was. And so we ignored that and just kept on building. And by 2004, we had a very comprehensive product. We took a number of customers live in Australia, and then we converted all of our Australian and New Zealand customers. And then we entered a sort of an international growth phase where we bought a company in Chicago, which had you know some footprint in the US, which gave us a bit of safety. And then we also went organically into the into Europe. And I ended up flying around the world doing you know partly programming, partly sales, partly management, partly anything else I could do just to keep the company running and keep it keep it growing. Mm. Uh, I even ended up, uh, we, we, one of the things we, when we acquired the company in Chicago, they had an office in the Ukraine, very topical these days. Uh, but I actually lived in Kiev for about two and a half months uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to integrate that part of the business into what we did. We actually have probably... I don't know, 50 or so Ukrainian employees now, it, wow. not in Ukraine, but actually in Sydney. We've got a very uh, strong uh, Russian-Ukrainian-speaking population inside the company. Anyway, so the company grew. Uh, we, we then hit the global financial crisis. And just before that crisis hit, um, we'd made a decision to move away from traditional software licensing. And traditional software licensing is where you have a, a big upfront payment called the one-time license, and then you have a maintenance fee that goes on every year. And I actually remember talking to Mike Cannon-Brooks of Atlassian in 2007 about the way they sold their software, and I thought, that's such a brilliant idea, but I reckon I can go one step better than that. And I actually sort of flipped the whole model upside down, and we charge nothing up front for the software, and we charge only when you use. So we actually, we call that on-demand licensing. Now, that was really painful because we were giving up the big upfront checks but equally when the GFC hit nobody had any budget to buy software they actually wanted only to have OPEX no CAPEX operational expense no capital expense so our model just absolutely fell at the right time and we were at the right place and we grew between 2008 and 2011 we grew about three percent a month every month on compounding month to month. It's very, very high growth rate for a company because we had a very high productivity solution. There was no upfront cost. They didn't need to have a CapEx. And they were all, during the GFC, everyone was trying to cut their labor costs and reduce the, and increase their efficiencies and productivities. And we were perfectly fit for that. That's fascinating. There's so many threads I want to pull on there, but uh, I'd love to pull on the acquisition v organic growth thread first because right. fa fast forward to today, WiseTech has made more than 40 acquisitions of companies around the world. The, the WiseTech platform is really underpinned by CargoWise with then plenty of other platforms and software solutions uh, uh, offered around it. How do you think about that that tension between uh, growing organically v um, 
you know, growing inorganically and then integrating other businesses into WiseTech? So a lot of businesses use or inorganic or acquisitions as a way of growing. Um, and they keep those parts of the business live and they run them for the very long term. We don't do that. We buy those businesses in order to enhance our ability to serve our customers and to gain the knowledge, uh, the access to local markets, the uh, relationship with the government officials and customs authorities, and all of the things that you need from a knowledge and technology point of view to be in that marketplace. So acquisitions for us are a kind of a, a catalyst to help the business grow rather than you're not trying to buy that business and grow that business. You're trying to buy that business and, and actually grow our core product. So we still, our core product is a very, very substantial part of our total revenue. The acquired businesses do contribute revenue to the company, but they're all there to enhance the core business. And the people in those businesses become part of the CargoWise platform. The products get rewritten to be part of the CargoWise platform. And we use those businesses really as a foothold into new marketplaces, either geographically or logistically, into a marketplace where we wouldn't have the visibility, the the insight or the capability. You, know, you, you mentioned before that this is a very complex market. Imagine the complexity of having to build a customs uh, clearance system in an English-speaking country where we can read all the documents and we can talk to the customs officials. It's really, really, really hard. But you do that in a foreign language country, France or Germany or Spain, you can't talk to them, you can't read the documents, you can't talk to the customers. It's it's pretty much impossible without a foothold acquisition to get you into that country. And so the, all these acquisitions are a part of the organic strategy, even though they themselves are temporary inorganic. Yeah, it is a fascinating one. Uh, my housemate works for one of the big uh, global logistics companies and even he managing a certain type of product just in Australia, the amount of you know legal changes that then he has to be up to date with just moving things in and out of Australia. I, I can't imagine what it, what it would be like on a global platform. And and I guess the, the second thread I want to pull on is despite all that complexity, despite all the acquisitions, uh, WiseTech has remained profitable. As you said, you always wash your own face, which is a novel uh, concept for tech companies these days. Uh, I guess, what advice do you have for, for other tech founders? And have you ever been tempted to raise money or is it... Uh You've got you got the strategy. You're going to stick to it. Look, it's not like we haven't raised money, but we've never been at any time. We've never been unprofitable. Mm. Raising the money was for growth. We, we we raised a small amount of money from two private investors in 2005. They're still very very proud shareholders today, and very wealthy shareholders, <laughs> as it turns out as well. We've raised money a year prior to IPO to help with the acquisitions, and we also raised money post IPO, but. Lastly, it was it was a relatively small amount of the capital, uh, given the size of the company. And these days, you know, well, I would never say never, but raising money is not a likely outcome for the future. We've got a very strong, you know, cash generative, highly profitable business, and we're able to. You know, go to market and acquire companies through the the balance sheet that we've got and the profit and loss we've got. So we're very capable of doing that without having to go back to shareholders and ask for more money. And I think that's what I say to the other founders that talk to me. I say, I, I ended up at the time of IPO, I probably had something like seventy percent of the company. Um, but a lot of founders end up with, you know, 5% of the mm. company because they've had to go through successive rounds of capital raisings and private equity and everything else. And you, you end up with a tiny proportion of a very big pie, but you end up with a tiny portion of it. Uh, by the way, I, I wasn't about... It was never about me holding on to shares. It was actually about I just didn't see the need to raise money other than for very strategic reasons. It was never about keeping the company running or paying for, you know, a cash burn. Uh, I think there's a really important lesson here that companies that, that 
that start out intending to be profitable very quickly, they end up being much more valuable businesses and their discipline in doing that is much more respected, particularly now with interest rates rising and capital being uh, you know, withdrawn from the markets with the quantitative tightening. Mm. It's now is the time that companies that are very profitable are very valuable as well. It, it feels like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it feels like you know having so much of the company yourself allowed you to be more patient. You started the company in 1994. You didn't IPO until 2016. And you think about the, the, you know, the timelines that venture capitalists are working on these days. They don't have the patience to sit and wait 22 years as the business grows organically. They, you know, they, they want to move quicker than that. Um, do, you think, do you think that's fair to say that you were able to be more patient because you held on to so much of the company? Well, it was a combination of patience and trying to figure out what to do. I was learning as I went. <laughs> Look, uh, one of the things to think about here is that if you rush into things, you always make those mis- little mistakes that you then regret for a long time. So one of our little mantras is we have a lot of these little sayings that we talk about inside the company. One of them is slower today, faster forever. It means don't rush it, get it right, and then and then you you can live with it very effectively for a long time. If you if you rush in and do it badly, then you've got to redo it and redo it and redo it. And it's actually very expensive and it's very inefficient. It's often the reason why companies are losing money is because they're trying to go so fast they haven't got time to do it well. One big moment, I guess, in the, the past few years for WiseTech was when J Capital wrote their reports and you ultimately stared down the the activist short sellers. And I think, you know, that's that was probably where I first heard about WiseTech, um, you know, a few years ago. And, you know, seeing you've ultimately proved them wrong very clearly and the share price has done a lot of the talking since. Looking back on, on that moment and thinking about activist short sellers more generally, um, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that trend in the market? Well, the first thing is that short sellers exist and that's not going to change. There's a, there's a few different colours in that, in that short seller area. There are the hedge funds who sort of balance their portfolio with, with the sort of buy and sell. There are the activists who take a very active position in getting into companies and pushing them to do certain things to improve the business. And then there's what I think the Americans call short and distort which is probably more likely what we're talking about. I, I think the, the, the long-term solution for anybody is to focus on the business. You basically have to realise that you can't stop that narrative because it's coming from overseas. It's coming from outside the legal jurisdiction. And unfortunately, our regulators have very little ability to manage that. And that's just an unfortunate thing. A combination of freedom of speech and, and uh, inability to reach through the legal niceties make it very difficult to to do anything and actually it's it's very distracting to even focus on it because you know whilst we utterly utterly disagree with almost anything that they said what we realized is that all we have what we have to do is we have an obligation to to inform the market correctly and get on with the business of running the company anything else is actually destructive of shareholder value and so I have to get off, off the ground, felt a bit beaten up and dust myself off and, you know, take put some band-aids on the bruises, but then just get on with it and realise that the strategy was right and we didn't actually change our strategy. Uh, some people have suggested that we stopped acquiring because of the, um, the, the attacks from J Capital and others. Actually not true because we had a particular program in mind and that program quite correctly came to an end just around the end of 2000 and just beginning of 2020, which is when the short attacks sort of happened in late 2019. Um, and we spent a couple of years during COVID. COVID gave us, you know, a, a lot to think about and a lot of um, things to work on. But ultimately, we've proved that the company is an incredibly profitable, very cash-generated business. And the one thing that you can't fake, you know, there's all sorts of, apparently, all sorts of accounting tricks that people can use. But with WiseTech, the one th- and with any company, the one thing you can't fake is cash. Mm. Cash is really easy to audit. It's really easy to verify. And it's impossible to, to make it any other way than being profitable. So, very luckily, I mean, We've got a little under five hundred million on the balance sheet in cash, and we're obviously well well stoked up for the future. And we're, we've started acquiring again because we've we've sort of gone through the COVID era. We've cleaned up a lot of the things we wanted to clean up, and we're now ready, willing, and able to to commence another a different strategy, not the strategy we ran in seventeen to twenty. 
Now, when you think about activist short sellers or whatever you want to call them, uh, because they're, an, they're a thing that you can't really fix, the best thing that anybody, any CEO can do if they get attacked is to respond correctly to the market, inform the market correctly, dust yourself off and get on with proving them wrong. That's the only thing you can really do, prove them wrong. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And uh, Richard, you mentioned, you know, you're, we're through COVID and you're looking at the next program of work and thinking about the future. And I'd love to turn to the future and what's next for WiseTech and the logistics industry. But before then, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Richard, before the break, we spoke about the 28-year journey to where you are today. You've built an $18 billion company with your team and you're a sort of a central part in the logistics industry around the world. We'd love to now turn to what's next for the, the logistics industry. And we're speaking a few weeks after the FedEx CEO came out, reported a disappointing set of numbers and said based on the numbers they're seeing, Uh, a recession is coming. So I guess the first question is, are you seeing numbers like that and what's next for the logistics industry? No, I'm not seeing those numbers yet. And and remember that FedEx is a small, the largest part of FedEx, FedEx is a customer, by the way, and so I'm not going to talk specifically about our relationship with FedEx, which is a very good relationship. Um, FedEx is a, is, has a very, very large small parcel business. And uh, effectively, that is driven by e-commerce uh, and the delivery of small parcels uh, internationally and domestically to their to the purchases of people from the, whatever online site, whether it's an Amazon site or an eBay site or whatever it is. Now, they are at the very front end of the system and when there is buyer sentiment change it's very quickly going to affect them and it has and i'm assuming that you'll see in some other businesses similar businesses like ups and perhaps other other courier businesses you'll see some of that impact happening relatively soon we're talking about the size of that impact and at at this stage to me it's definitely a, a pullback but if you think about what all the Federal Reserve and our Australian Reserve Bank is saying, and almost every regulator in the world is saying, is we have to stop the demand in order to control inflation. And the only way you can stop demand in order to control inflation using monetary policy, interest rates, is to shut down people's purchasing habits. Now, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a politician or, or anybody that would want to be one, but uh, but I think that the best thing to do is to tell people to stop purchasing rather than punish them to so that they don't that they stop purchasing. But you know, what's going to happen is we're going to increase interest rates. People are going to get frightened, and they're going to start moving back to saving rather than spending. And some of the COVID premiums will sort of dribble away as well and there'll be less money to spend and therefore there'll be less commerce. Then the banks will switch to stimulation again so we'll go back to the other cycle. I think we've got to remember that if you look at the long term here, the long term cycle is uh, a very strong upward trend, particularly for technology companies, particularly for WiseTech. But there will be some short-term pain. However, in our part of the business, which is much more wholesale and much more bulk freight, 
we actually we have seen no uh, change in volumes other than an increase in volumes. So we've still got uh, a big backlog, uh, you know, ships still tickling the east coast of the US is still backlogged very badly. The west coast has come off a bit. There's there's not as much backlog there, but it's still backlogged. Freight rates are still relatively high compared to 2019 numbers. Uh, and we've got some visibility of that sort of past Christmas, I guess. Uh, but we continue to watch that, and and uh, and I'm very conscious of the fact that that's an important uh, indicator that we do need to talk to. And a lot of investors, when they talk to us, don't ask about why; they ask about the economy. Mm. It's quite funny. I never thought I'd be an econ- economist <laughs> for our for our shareholders, but whatever. The other thing to know about WiseTech, and I just refer you back to what I said about the global financial crisis in 2008. We actually had a big step up in our business success during that time because where the cost reduction uh, productivity control, you know, risk mitigation software, rather than, you know, we're, we're not an expense to the business, we're an amplifier of the value of the, of the capabilities of the business. And so we expect that if there's a downturn and there has to be some cutting of costs, that will be a very active part of that improvement in cost, in cost reduction. It's a fascinating business model. And do you ever wonder why more tech CEOs haven't followed you and you know moved even beyond the software as a service monthly subscription to to what you're doing where it's like usage base there's a there's a hundred different models there, there are different places where a monthly fee or an annual fee still works but i really like the idea of people paying for what they're using and choose and, and bear in mind that the very substantial part of our customer base are not on any long-term contracts can can leave at any moment and they don't have any forward payment and they might have a month in advance or something our attrition rate is less than one percent and has been for the last 10 years that's all factors considered bankruptcies business closure loss through an acquisition customer departure all all factors we have still got a less than 1% attrition rate in the company. So the, my idea is that if your software solves a really fundamental problem, it's pretty hard to walk away from it. And if you have the software capabilities that are so substantial and so fundamental and so deep and capable, it makes it very hard for anybody to be a reasonable competitor because they have to spend 25 years doing it. Right? Mm, mm. In the competition that we have, they typically are very regional or domestic. We don't really have true global competitors that are wide enough and deep enough to give the service that we give to our customers. Yeah, that that is fascinating in some ways that the shipping industry and the, you know the inter- trade is international. It, it's fascinating that there aren't more global competitors coming out of Europe or the US or you know more recently out of China. What how do you what do you attribute the fact that a a startup company from Australia has been able to become the global player? There's a few different things. The first thing is that nobody ever suspected that we were a reasonable competitor because we were from Australia. So they went, oh, don't worry about those guys. They won't, they won't matter. But we did. And, and actually, that was really good, particularly in the early stages where we weren't large enough to really be substantial. We were able to creep up uh, un- unannounced and un- uncared about and still win. Uh, another good thing about being in Australia is that I can do business in the US in the mornings and I can do business in Europe in the evenings. And so my, my days are quite long, yeah. if you think about it. That's, that's, a, that's a tough call, but, it's, but I can actually run a global business from Sydney pretty effectively. I've lived in the US. Uh, I had a house in Chicago at some, one stage during the business, and I've lived in Europe. As I said, I spent some time in the Ukraine and certainly in England. It's easier to run from here than it is from the other places. That you, you get, you get misled by the substantialness of the substantiveness of the US or Europe, and you think this is everything. Mm. Whereas in Australia, everything you do has to be outside the country because you just only have one and a half percent of the world economy. <laughs> so if you're going to be successful, you've got to grow a, a global business, and you just have to. Fit Figure out how to be global, so that's been very good. The other, the other thing is that we're a we're a business that deals with very large corporates rather than you know B two C. We are very much B two B, and we're operating in an, inc- in an incredibly complicated area that almost everybody thinks the only way I can deal with it is to break it up into little pieces. Where we've decided that the only way we can deal with it is to make it a single functional capability set. All those pieces still exist, but we've joined them all together so they're seamless. And that's a thing that other people have not confronted. Yeah, yeah, it is a, it's a fascinating story and love to see an Australian success story taking on the world. 
Uh, Richard, Bryce and I are here at Equity Mates. Bryce obviously not here at the moment, but uh, uh, here at Equity Mates, we're fascinated by the idea of what matters and what doesn't because, uh, you know, there there are different metrics or different concepts in different industries that are really important and you often only really understand how important they are when you're in the industry. Bryce and I came from a retail background and you know it was all about same store sales and sales per square foot and and those metrics. So when we have a CEO on, we love to understand what the metrics are in your industry and in your business. So when you look at WiseTech, when you look at uh, the software platforms you're building, and I guess the logistics industry in general. What are those metrics that you that you first look to? So the metrics you just quoted are all what are called lagging indicators. Yeah, this is quite an important issue because we're now going to get to the real nub of one of the really fundamental wise tech school uh, tool sets. They are all lagging indicators. By the time you have them, it's too late to do anything about them. If your same store t- style sales are down. You can't go and manage that out. It's too late. It's already done. So we have this quadrant. We call it, it's like a Boston quadrant. The the top left is the behavior itself that you're trying to create. This just applies to almost anything. The, the, The right top quadrant is the direct measurable effect of that behavior. The bottom left quadrant is the leading indicator of that behavior. And then the bottom right quadrant is the lagging indicator. And the lagging indicator is the one you don't look at. <laughs> okay. You just you measure it in the end. You actually look at, are we doing the right behaviors? Are we doing the right things? Are we acting the right way? And is there a measurement for that? I can see that behavior and can I measure that behavior as having a direct effect? And can I then see the leading indicator? You can think of this in sales. So it might be, uh, you know, new opportunities. Uh, what? How do you create? A, so sales is the lagging is the lagging indicator. The leading indicator is sales calls or sales approaches or something like that. The direct effect that that would be an opportunity being filled out. The leading indicator would be proposals, and the lagging indicator would be sales. Mm. So the one you don't measure, at least on a on a monthly basis, is the lagging indicator. You measure. Are you making those outbound calls or are you you doing whatever you're doing to engage with customers? Are you making, uh, you're raising opportunities in the sales system? Are you making proposals? Are you in the middle of proposal? And then, and then sales is the thing that happens because all the other things are happening. Mm. Now, you can apply that to almost every part of management and it means you get a six to 12 months head start on what you're supposed to be doing. So the, a, lot, a lot of this stuff is behavioral science rather than management technology. But it's still very relevant to think about the leading indicators and the behaviours that you need in order to create the lagging indicators and to think of the lagging indicators as the success factor, but everything else is what you have to do. Yeah, I love that. Now I'm going to take that away, have it sit down with Bryce and tell him that we need to change the metrics that we look at here at Equity Mates. What are those leading indicators that are most important for you? And, you know, for us as outside investors, what are the things that... um, that we should be looking at in the wise tech business, you know, the, the most important things, I guess. So if you look across the business, there's a lot of different, those quadrants exist. Uh, by the way, I just want to, uh, one other thing, we run the business what we call done statements. Okay. Rather than true metrics, we think of what does done look like? So a project doesn't have a project plan only. It actually has a done statement that says, I know when I've delivered the right thing because this is what done looks like. So we spend much more time on thinking about what the outcome's going to be rather than thinking about, you know, what I'm going to do. The do part is very important, but it only matters if it's going to create the outcome. So all this stuff is, you know, it's sort of really embedded in the core culture of the company and, and in our workflow systems and in our, uh, you know, productivity systems and so forth. But um, if you look across the business, you, you think very early on in the pipeline. You don't think about the revenue for the end of you obviously budget and you you do guidance to market and so forth but you have to think about the fine grain things that are going to work that you have to do now in order for the revenue to come out next quarter or next half or next year mm. and so it, in you know it's a very complex business it's got a lot of different uh, aspects to it it's in a lot of countries got a lot of offices and that would be impossibly hard to manage unless we had this system that underpins all of that and so uh, well, I'm not going to tell you all the things because there's hundreds <laughs> of them. Um, 
it's it's basically a breakdown, a work breakdown structure of of that sort of revenue. You start you start by saying, well, here's our growth. Here's here's the things we're doing this year. This is what it's going to look like. Uh, there's a little bit of stuff in there for bluebirds. There's a little bit of stuff in there for things for for risk. But ultimately, you then go back to all the things in that sort of quadrant that we talked about and what does done look like. We've sort of uh, shifted a little bit to your uh, leadership philosophy as CEO and how you build and manage a team. So let, let's stick there because it is fascinating and I feel like I'm going to pick up some tips for how I should be running my business. But I guess, you know, you started a startup in 1994 and, you know, now it's an $18 billion business with a footprint around the world. So you had to learn to be a leader as you grew the company. In that time, have you developed a leadership philosophy as CEO? Maybe not one philosophy. The first thing I'd say is that there's on our on our um, website under who we are, there is a credo. I started out by writing vision statements for the company. And, you know, when you're a small business in Sydney, your vision statement might appear huge, but it turns out that it's not actually anything like big enough and you blow through that vision statement. So having gone through in the first sort of 15 years, gone through three different vision statements and going, oh, well, it's now in the rearview mirror. That's not supposed to happen, right? Vision statements are supposed to be almost unattainable. So I went, we're going to stop writing vision statements. I'm going to write a credo, which is which is who we are and what we think and how we work. And that credo, it's, it is a... It's very poetic to me. It's it's hard to read it without getting choked up, actually. And it was uh, it was a combination of my own, my own efforts and the efforts of the staff, getting a lot of feedback and trying to be quite passionate about how we felt and what we thought, because I wanted everybody to be invested in the future of the company and to be, uh, you know, to want to own the thing that they're building. So that's very important. I think culture, in one of the sentences in the first or second paragraph is culture eats strategy for lunch. And I meant it because you can have all the strategy in the world, but you've actually got to make it happen. Mm. If you have a culture that is there about making things happen, people will take on strategy and just get it done. If you have a strategy with no culture, people will just go home at the end of the day and, you know, that's it. Mm. So you've really got to have people that are impassioned. And we do have a very strong desire to change the world for the better. The, the last sentence of the credo is we'll change the world one innovation at a time. And I think that speaks to software engineers and engineers generally. We, we love to fix things and make them better than they were. We love to leave the world a better place than when we entered it. Yeah. And I think when you do that, you stop thinking about money and you start thinking about the things that matter to you. Money is kind of, a, for me, and I think for many people around me, money becomes a measurement rather than a goal. The goal is to make things better and to build great software products and to be proud of the work that you do. The money happens to be a kind of a side effect or a measurement. So culture eats strategy for lunch. I believe that wholeheartedly. I guess the challenge is how do you build that culture? And then as you grow and especially as you acquire, how do you maintain and spread that culture? So how have you done it at WiseTech? What tips do you have for Australian entrepreneurs expanding globally? What's that quote from Shakespeare? Aye, that's the, there's the rub. <laughs> so, so I think... The way you have to look at this is that, and I probably disagree with a lot of commentators on this, I think culture is an active rather than passive thing and that you have to spend time thinking about it and making it happen. You have to have all these little anecdotes, what we call mantras. You have to have regular connections with the staff. We have a thing called Cake Day once a month and uh, before COVID and coming back again now, we have a thing called Beer O'Clock once a week. (laughs) Uh, And we do that around the world. And you have to have the communications with the staff. You have to keep reminding them of what our purpose is and what we're doing to meet that purpose and how we're how we are succeeding in meeting that purpose. Because it's not good enough just to tell people this is what your job is or this is what we're doing. You have to remind them of the work ahead, but you also have to remind them of the successes behind them. At some level, you need to understand that people have different goals. You have to be 
broad enough and have enough diversity in what you're doing to allow people to be individuals but also allow everybody to be a team. And so, and I think software companies have this. They've got a very open culture, you know, relatively agile. You know, we, we don't have any problems with diversity other than the availability of talent, which is, you know, it's always a constraint. We're always fighting that particular arms race to try to find the, the best talent and hire, hire more of it which is a very positive thing when you think about it. And, you know, leaders have to lead by example. They have to lead by communicating, by, by teaching people. They have to be teachers. They have to be communicators. They have to do the things that they're telling other people. I've done, practically speaking, every job in the, com- in the company. And, and I, I shouldn't do those now because I have lots of very, very strong people supporting me. But knowing what people do and knowing how people do it and being able to talk to them about their position and their job and their actions and being able to push them. You know, sometimes giving them the right nudge at the right time for the right reasons is very important. But also continuing to paint that future picture that they can actually invest their time in. They don't want to turn up to work and take a paycheck home. Everybody does that. Let's do something that's even bigger and better than that. Let's change the world. Let's make a difference. Let's build something fantastic and be proud of the work we've done. That's important to keep saying. And you've got to keep doing it. It's, It's every day. It's every week. It's every month. Well, Richard, it's been a really inspiring chat and it's it's been great to get to speak to you. We are almost out of time, but we do like to finish with the same final three questions. So we'll jump over to them uh, and we'll start with the short term. If you think about WiseTech for the next 12 months, uh, what's in the pipeline? Well, we've made a very clear decision that we've got six focus areas and it's a big business we can do we can walk and chew gum as they say but we've got a a real focus on landside logistics on warehousing on our new CargoWise product called Neo, which is for the beneficial cargo owners the importers and exporters we've got a focus on converting the documents across the world in logistics into digital documentation Um, We've obviously got a very strong focus on customs clearance and customs procedures. Uh, And there's a lot of compliance and very complex things that run in there. And we've also got an international e-commerce piece as well to focus on. So, you know, at, at our business size, six is quite a lot. I wouldn't like to do too much more than that. There's more things, there's a hundred things we could do. The really important things, and I, I actually say this to people, the most important things is what you don't do. And the next most more important things is what you choose to do mm. because you can do everything, but it'll go so slow and be so meaningless and so value valueless that you'll never get any value. You have to focus on some things, you know, focusing everything is the same as focusing on nothing. Mm. Yeah. I, I think those six things are important for us. Obviously we want to continue to grow the company. Obviously we want to continue to make the, com- the company even more profitable, even though, you know, where, you know, people in the investment community talk about the rule of 40 and, this is the sort of investment horizon that you above above if you combine growth with profitability and it's above 40 the number you know if it's 20% growth and 20% profit then it's investable we're running about 63 on a cash basis which is which is huge wow so i think we need to keep the company growing but but you always have to focus on what matters and those things really do matter and there's a lot of stuff whilst very interesting and at some time will be very important nothing else really matters. You've got to focus on the core product and those six things. That's it. Yeah, love that. If you turn to risks, what would you say the biggest risk for WiseTech is right now? Well, the obvious one for all companies is cybersecurity risk. We're, we're in a world where we've created a, a sort of an economic platform, you know, cryptocurrencies that make it very easy for cyber terrorists to take the money and run very hard to track them down, very hard to stop them. And so they're economically incentivized to damage companies to extract a ransom from them. So we're talking about you know, criminals who are targeting companies by with a criminal activity designed to imperil the company and imperil its customers so that they can extract a ransom from them. It's a horror. But you know, without some actions, we we obviously have to be very, very concerned about that. And we put an enormous amount of time, much earlier than most people, into cybersecurity. I've I've sat on the cybersecurity committee for, I'm um, say, the last six or seven years, and uh, it's become one of those areas where we've done some very specific things. I'm not going to talk about them because one thing you don't do is you don't tell people how and where you're doing those things, but we've done a number of very fundamental things to make us stronger, harder to attack, 
harder to penetrate and then harder to capture. And we know how to, we can fight our way out and we know we, we can, how we can stop people from getting in. The, the biggest risk inside that cybersecurity risk is the humans because we're all fallible and there's if you have 2,000 people and you mount a clever phishing campaign, PH, so it's in phishing, not, not, F, not S, F for phishing, then you can potentially get somebody to put their credentials in and suddenly have let somebody in. So we've obviously moved to multi-factor, which is you know, much, much, much harder to attack. And we've obviously moved to petitioning and all sorts of other clever things, uh, which I won't go into too much detail on. But the point is, cybersecurity is the biggest extent risk, risk for any company. And, and every company will, will experience an attack. The question is whether the attack will be successful or not. Mm. So we, we know that the, we're, we're on a constant guard. It's an arms race. And we're always going to have to be upgrading our capability and thinking carefully about where we take that. And Richard, final question. Uh, we like to think long-term here at Equity Mates. You've obviously thought long-term in building and growing WiseTech over the last 28 years. If you think about WiseTech in 10 or maybe 20 years from now, what does success look like? We want to become the operating system for global logistics, full stop. Nice. That's a that's a good done statement. That is a good done statement. <laughs> well, Richard, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. I'm sure the Equity Mates community would have got will have got a lot out of this conversation, and hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Well, thank you very much, Alec. I appreciate it. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy. And this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. With the drag and drop theme editor, we don't need to hire a developer to do any coding. Each theme is automatically optimized on mobile. It's incredible. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. 